0: Welcome to Louder Than Words, the podcast that's all about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty. In this episode, we're talking about bodies, hearts and minds, the profound importance of history, how history can be used to empower and how history can give young people a sense of control over emotional and body well-being. It's a great pleasure to welcome our guests today, Tracy Lochran from the Department of History here at the University of Essex and Kate Mahoney, formerly of the department and now of Health Watch, Watch Essex. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Let's start like this. Uh, you've both used history, uh, we might call it public history, to promote a better understanding of gender issues, used history to let young people take control over emotional and bodily well-being um, and this implies perhaps thinking of time slightly differently forwards and backwards and the japanese printmaker hokusai began his wonderfully popular woodblock prince in his 70s and said of this awakening none of my work before my 70th year is really worth counting of course it was but he was looking forward and seeing how he could build on what he'd already done how does looking back as you have done tell us about what we should be doing now so in a sense there's a kind of few headlines of what you might call in shorthand public history tracy
1: okay well my view really is that the past offers us a lot of lessons about how things were once different and so they can be different again. Um, So really thinking about the past is a way to empower us to act in the present and to change the future.
2: Okay. I completely agree and certainly in our own research we've traced um, women's experiences of health across the course of their lives which means that we come to understand how say an event that they experienced in their childhood might kind of then influence their kind of lives and their experiences into their old age. So certainly we've been looking kind of forward and back in that way over women's lifetimes to then think about how young people today can think about their lives in new and different ways.
0: And and you've both been helping young people take control of emotional well-being amongst others in developing a a set of ideas and um, toolkits for schools, local groups and organisations around the project called Bodies, Hearts and Minds. So tell us a bit about this and, and its impacts.
1: Okay. well, this toolkit was co-created by Kate and also by our former colleague, Dr Daisy Paling, who was also based in the Department of History here, um, and I also helped to develop it. It's a series of activities based on sources that we found in the course of our research. So it makes use of things like women's magazines, teen magazines, the oral history interviews that Kate mentioned we conducted. And it puts them alongside a set of questions and practical activities like creating a health and beauty time capsule with the aim of helping people to both understand a bit more about the past, but also to relate past experiences directly
0: to their own presence. And this is past experiences within the life course, but more than that, you know, in the in the, in the the time before us, in what people would think of as history. I mean, history is not just the distant past, it's the immediate past for us as well, isn't it?
1: No, that's true. And the toolkit really draws on sources from around the 1950s up to actually the 1990s which seems very
2: recent to me, but it isn't. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly that's been an interesting kind of, in our focus on contemporary history, actually then reaching out to people and talking about what we do. It's very interesting how people immediately jump on thinking that we might be working on something that isn't as contemporary as this. And I think it's been very rewarding for a lot of people to realise that their own lives are history, even though they are kind of incredibly contemporary.
0: So, could you flesh this out with a with a little bit about how this is having an impact upon um, uh, students in schools, people in local groups and organizations how is How is the the presentation of a range of sorts of information um put in a way that can help people, I guess, reflect in different ways, see the world in a different way, And maybe then the mirror shines back on what what kind of agency we have as individuals to do something about it?
1: Well, the toolkit only formally launched in February 2022, but we did do a lot of work with um, youth organisations, school teachers, school children, guides and so on in trialling those activities and really trying to make sure it was a collaborative enterprise as much as possible. And I do actually have a quotation from one of the Healthwatch Essex Young Mental Health Ambassadors, which I absolutely love. Um, she said, I loved this theme of empowerment. These interactive activities, discussions and fun photos really enhanced the concepts of female identity in a very positive light. It really hit home for me with my personal mental health journey and I believe if this was shown to me when I was younger, I think things would have turned out differently. And I don't think we could hope for anything more than that from the toolkit.
0: Yeah, yes, exactly. So in that direct sense, this, this this bit of work around history has changed the way that people see the world now and then changed opportunities for the future as well. Is that is that what you're kind of seeing when it comes to Healthwatch Essex, Kate?
2: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, so that quotation was actually from a young mental health ambassador based at Healthwatch Essex. So we sent the um, a, a draft template of the toolkit to um, the ambassador network that they run and um asked for feedback in that way um so certainly it was it was great to have that opportunity even in the, de- the development stage to kind of see that we were having that positive impact on young people's lives
0: mm. well, could you just go a little bit further then for individuals the, this wasn't happening before then did this op- does this does this reflection on on kind of events in the past presentation of how we are how we look um thinking about events, I'm kind of guessing a little bit of the the sorts of things that you're asking people to do. Perhaps you just explain a little bit more and a bit more detail of what it is in this thing that you call the toolkit.
1: Okay, I think um, it is new and unusual in the sense of using history to try to get young people to think differently about the present. Um, There are other toolkits, but they tend to be very based on the contemporary moment rather than using those historical sources and people are often quite surprised that history can be used in this way and that it deals with things like bodies and emotions um, you know with different aspects of gender identity for example. So the talk itself is divided into four sections um, on generational relationships, growing up, body image and self-expression and sex education and let's see I'll think about a typical activity in it, in the growing up section, is around um, periods and period poverty. And one of the things we do there is present some excerpts from oral history interviews we've conducted about uh, a woman who grew up, she was a teenager in the 1970s, talking about her own sense of real shame and fear of getting her period and people knowing about it. And we compare that with a system that was used in the 1920s, a silent purchase system, uh, where a particular sanitary towel brand published adverts where you could cut out this coupon and hand it over to the shopkeeper so that they wouldn't you wouldn't have to ask for sanitary products and we put that alongside statistics from the present like the fact that in 2017 71 percent of young people were embarrassed to be buying menstrual products so there's a real link even be, now yeah, yes, definitely. yeah. Um, and we think by putting those things in a chain of events from the 1920s up to somebody in the 1970s Right up to today, they can see that there is this theme of shame and secrecy and stigma running through the past. And it actually forces, I think, young people to confront some of those attitudes in themselves. And certainly when we were running those activities, mainly with girl guide groups, but also um, at Colchester Academy, (laughs) uh, we found those really productive and really fun discussions, actually. Mm. People be... The girls would be quite silent to start with and then as they warmed up and got to this theme of empowerment and made posters around period poverty to challenge stigma uh, they got almost too lively sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well
0: I think this is very interesting because you, what you're describing you're using history to inform about these long processes and the repetition of similar kind of um, processes and outcomes for individuals but does it also help for for? To to avoid the sort of direct confrontation with how things are today, you know, where we find ourselves today, sometimes is uncomfortable um, or or threatened or uncertain because we've, we've come right into the immediate now. But if we're looking back a bit, does that mean that people find it slightly easier to talk about another time and therefore there's a subtext which actually which is, as you've described, Tracy, is actually we're talking about this thing now and its relevance now. But we're talking about this in the nineteen seventies or the nineteen twenties or or whatever. Does that is that how it's working, do you think?
2: Um yeah, I definitely think so. There was a sort of real benefit, particularly with the workshops that we did that Tracy was talking about, to start um off the activities with that sense of distance. So we gave the girls that we were working with a series of historical sources. And they started to look at those and read those, including the silent coupon. And then it was only slowly kind of slowly through reading those sources and sort of understanding them. They then kind of started to be like, oh, yeah, no, this applies to me. Like this affects me, too. But I, I do think if we'd gone to them straight away and said, how does it feel when you buy menstrual products at the supermarket? They wouldn't have. Yeah, they wouldn't have offered that kind of immediate um openness about their experience i think having that distance and then kind of slowly working towards the present was really effective and we've tried to develop that with or integrate that into the activities we've done in the toolkit as well where we start off with um, a historical source and then we slowly bring it into the present in encouraging them to think about their own experiences or do an activity which breaks down some of the historical stigma that still exists today which we and we found that to be really effective yeah, so,
1: so one of the activities in the toolkit which was designed by Daisy Paling is called Could You Be an Agony Aunt and it starts off with what's fairly a simple matching exercise, um, some short letters from Jackie magazine in the 70s with the answers and they are supposed to match the letter to the answer and then reflect on whether it provides good advice or not but then it's followed by an exercise where we ask if a friend of yours was experiencing one of these problems now what kind of advice would you give them, where could they turn? So very gentle lead into thinking about the problems from their own perspective.
0: Very interesting. So it is kind of in that sense performative. You're asking people to uh, look at some information and and you've set that up in a particular kind of way that reveals something about another time, which then has an immediate link to to the current period that we find ourselves in. Um, And then... um, You're immediately jumping into what do we do about it, you know? And is that is that how that's kind of happening? I mean, this is this is this is history in meaning for now, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's you're using that history to bring it into the present.
1: Yes, definitely. And I think one of the reasons this is interesting to do in terms of working with teenagers is that. Lots of things about being a teenager have changed over time, certainly, (laughs) at the same time. um, There are all kinds of bodily changes associated with adolescence that normally make quite a lot of people feel quite awkward, less comfortable in themselves. It's a transitional point. And so it's good to find sources that can reach across that divide where there are clear similarities in the things that people were struggling with in the past. So, for example, embarrassment over periods. But also to highlight the really different social context that could make it all the more difficult to cope with that problem and therefore to enable people to think a bit more about what is it about the social context not just me internally that's making this difficult how can I act on the world around me
0: mm. and you're doing this with a group and not with a lot of individuals so they're uh, as you've described you've got a group of people who are working on this together talking to each other so collaborating to come up with some common views as to what what they might do what we might do about that um so there's a little bit of strength you're not sitting on your own um uh, being asked to reflect on something that is quite as you said tracy quite kind of you know tense about identity belonging sense of worth all of those sorts of things
1: Definitely. I mean, we've imagined the toolkit as something that would be used in groups, um, potentially by teachers who are doing personal, social and health education, but also by group leaders, by guiding leaders, um, for example, or other youth organisations. We also had talks with Outhouse East. Um, so there is that sense that it's something that's designed to be used in a group where people can share experiences and facilitate conversations, Um you know, we both have researched the history of feminism and one of the key lessons of feminist activism in the past is that you discuss the personal, it turns into a shared experience, it becomes political. And um, Though that's not a message that is heavily put across in the toolkit, but it is, I think, a, a basic ethos behind it. At the same time, we were very aware that this is available to download for free from our website. We wanted it to be something where if somebody just happened across it, downloaded it and read it, it would make sense to them. There would be something for reflection in there.
0: Mm. And we've talked about um, uh, the target being um, uh, female students, young girls. Uh, also for for boys as well. The, the, tell us a little bit about some of those. I mean, you could ca- could you do the same sort of thing around uh, around period poverty with groups of boys or mixed groups or. Is that difficult?
1: No, Kate and I are both smiling because this was an issue we hit (laughs) upon in the development of the toolkit.
2: Um. Yeah, certainly one of the key pieces of feedback that we gained when we um, went to the young mental health ambassadors at Healthwatch Essex was that some of the male um, reviewers felt like the activities in the toolkit didn't necessarily appeal to them. So, um, and because we had been working on the history of women's health, we'd sort of assumed kind of our audience would be girls but actually then we were like hang on a minute like we can obviously do activities that are relevant to boys experiences as well so we um we got in touch with um, historians who work on masculinity, um, Rich Hall, who works on the history of fathers and sons, intergenerational relationships, and Mark Anderson, who looks at kind of men's hairstyles and the history of male styling, and we asked them to develop activities for the toolkit as well to ensure that it is inclusive. And with that in mind as well, we didn't necessarily want to endorse a kind of gender binary in the activities that we did, so there's one activity in particular called What Does Fashion and Beauty Mean to You?, where we incorporate um, the experiences of trans people and non-binary individuals um, where they talk about um, how they've kind of their fashion choices and how they choose to self-style and how that encourages the expression of their identity so we we'll- We've definitely expanded the toolkit beyond the first draft to be more inclusive to a range of different kind of gender identities.
0: Fascinating. And, and obviously, you're, you know, if I could go back to that thing about speaking, you're speaking to individuals and, and as it were our personal experiences in the world, but doing that in a in a collective context um, and helping people. Start a new journey together. Um, there's something I think quite interesting around that sort of collaborative bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Rebecca Solnit, the Canadian author, you'll know her well or know of her work well, wrote of elite panic that mm-hmm. the elite are so often used to using selfishness to advance their own interests. They can't understand when other people act together, help others, give gifts, and are not selfish. Mm-hmm. They expect a kind of world of selfishness. Um, but what you're describing here is, is is it strikes me a kind of really subtle way to help people understand where they are in the world, to deal with things like identity, belonging, relationships, which are... Really tricky stuff. But doing it in a collective way, not a selfish way. And I'm not saying that people would naturally be like that, but the expectation often from a from a world defined by a certain economic view would almost expect people to be selfish in that sense. But you're trying to do something different here. Is that fair or is it or is it am I drawing too large a conclusion from from uh, something that opens up the windows to lots of people?
2: No, I think um, I think that's really Valid point. Certainly, when we were trialling the toolkit activities, we did a number of um, workshops, as Tracy said, with Girl guy groups and school pupils, and one of the kind of main bits of feedback that we received was that it really brought them together as a group, and it made me realise that they might share their personal experiences amongst their friendship groups, but not necessarily as a class, and they. They said they. What the sort of the pupils that we worked with were like, Oh, you know, we. Um, it's really kind of galvanised us. that like we, yeah, we, we've never had this chance to do that before. And certainly with the girl guys we worked with as well. We used the um, workshops we did around the stigmatisation of menstruation to raise awareness about period poverty. And um, one of the guide groups actually then started a collection um, for their local women's refuge of menstrual products. And they they still do that now, kind of three years later. So it's really brought them together to instigate a broader social change. But that desire to change society was influenced by them sharing their personal experiences with each other. And that's been really brilliant to kind of get that stuff. Yeah, fascinating.
0: Back. So... so um some years ago, a 12-year-old schoolgirl in Stockholm decided on a Friday to sit outside the House of Parliament. And then within a very short period, a million people were taking Fridays off school to, um, to campaign around about clim- climate crisis. I mean, that's a very fast and extraordinary expansion from an individual into into kind of collective change but interested in how how you're using these perspectives on the past to get people to reflect now you might not necessarily be encouraging them to take action but then that provokes some sort of project that 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 increases people's sense of agency it's not just about the project itself it's Mm -hmm. the fact that actually we can do this it's Mm -hmm. kind of okay to do this oh it's effective to do this something interesting kind of emerges.
1: Yeah, and in the back of the toolkit, we've got a list of resources um, that users of the toolkit could take action with. We've got, um, you know, history days and months, markers where they might want to organise something, as well as lots of links to practical organisations that deal with issues that are discussed in the toolkit. So we really have tried to provide a sense of how people might start thinking about these issues and then go and do something with it if they want to.
0: Yeah, Change the world a bit, a little bit. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, could we go up a a kind of level to open up a discussion a little bit on on your own kind of um, historical research? Um, Tracy, you've worked on war and women and families in the past. And we talked about, uh, Kate, about your research on, on kind of feminist history. How have those kind of social changes since that war period in the middle part of the last century i mean salient issues for for the 2022 as well we know um women's understanding of body and emotional well-being representations of health and his illness these these have changed over time hugely of course as as many other things but in focusing upon that that tells us something new and significant about today
1: Well the project that Kate and I worked on together with Daisy Paling was funded by the Wellcome Trust and it was on women's emotional, psychological and bodily health in Britain between 1960 and 1990. And the central purpose of that research project was to try to understand women's experiences of their bodies and health from a kind of ground up perspective. So often when the history of women is written Um, A History of Women's Health is written, it's very top-down, it's what doctors thought, it's government reports. We wanted to find out what women themselves thought about their bodies and how they experienced them and how that had changed over this period of massive social change. You know, um, 1961, the oral contraceptive pill is introduced in Britain, Uh, it becomes available free to all on the NHS from 1974. I feel like I should have these (laughs) dates down. (laughs) Um, You know, then you see a drop in the birth rate, you see a rise in the divorce rate, um, at the same time, kind of lifestyle illnesses are becoming more prevalent. There are so many things that change about health and wellbeing in that time. And there's not really a history that talks about it from the perspective of women themselves. And particularly not one that brings together, you know, gay women, straight women, black women, white women, um, women of different social-economic classes. So what we've really been trying to do is find out what it was like to live at the centre of that history. Mm
0: what was it like <laughs> we can't we can't we, we, we can't simplify it in that way but 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 p- pick on a kind of a couple of changes i mean kind of mental health would be one thing that comes to mind maybe another would be as you mentioned earlier um uh more than just fashion but the way that we use ourselves to whether, the way that we need to present ourselves whether it's in the work or or leisure context or whether it's in the home there 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 are huge changes in in possibility and agency I mean would you say that that those opportunities have increased for women over that period they've definitely changed but have they have those opportunities given more choice more opportunity um they might have brought problems with that alongside that
1: oh see I think because we we interviewed eventually between us 91 women for this project Um, And so I'm just getting all of these voices (laughs) of different women in my heads. And I think they were saying, yes, no, no, yes. Um, Yeah. I mean, we had one interviewee who was absolutely adamant that she was born working class. Her mother was born working class. And although she was, you know, technically of this generation that had access to free education, actually, her real opportunities in life were no different. Um, Equally, though, we had quite a few interviewees who were really grateful for you know, being part of the baby boomer generation as they saw it. They, they often mentioned the NHS as something to be grateful. They often mentioned education. We ended up by accident talking to quite a few University of Essex graduates who often mentioned this university, which was great. Um, so in terms of those big changes that we think of immediately when we think about that historical period, there's definitely mixed opinions. One of the things that was quite interesting, though, is that we were conducting interviews when the Me Too movement was at its height. And so quite depressingly, we discovered that lots of stories of sexual harassment um, and assault going back quite a long way. And often women would reflect on these experiences and say, oh, you know, people make too much fuss about it nowadays, which I found quite depressing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because they couldn't say anything, perhaps in the past or they didn't have the opportunities to say well who knows i mean it could be all sorts of things but as you say yes i mean uh, people are speaking from one perspective into another one um, uh, and uh, i kind can of passing judgment i suppose aren't they on on the way things might be seen with the me too movement
1: yeah but well, i think it certainly reveals how complex people's attitudes can be in that on the one hand these women who made these comments tended to be very clear that things had changed and that was for the better you know in a couple of cases they would make references to their granddaughters not having to put up with that kind of thing at the same time when they were describing their own experiences they would really say things like oh you have to understand it was just very different then you know we just laughed it off or you know a couple of who said things like oh you know i wouldn't go complaining about somebody groping me on the tube i would have just hit that person and walked on um and so I think there was a sense that women didn't want to claim for themselves a sense of having been treated badly. They were very keen to say that they weren't victims. Mm. And I think there was a real sense of disliking what they associated of it as, the, as a victim-driven narrative with Me Too, which also wasn't how I
0: understood that movement. So, Yes, exactly. So there, there are kind of multiple ways to look at that. And I suppose if you're looking back if we use the history bit here within our own life course is that you can only point towards your own experiences so much before you really want to not unpick them anymore you know you, you because we create a kind of sense of meaning around them and a sense of worth and self-worth we hope um, but i like the idea of you can if you're a if you've got a grandchild, you can see their opportunities very differently and you can talk about them in a different kind of way because you're not actually having to confront how you went through life. But you can tell people what it was like, but only, only to a certain extent are you going to open that box completely.
1: Very much so. And I think when I started researching women's health, it was actually way back when my first niece, who's now 16, was first born. And it was very much of a sense of seeing this you this baby who was already having all of these perceptions of gender put on her um, and thinking, you know, where does this come from? How, what can I do in my research and my way of thinking about the world that might provide some information and knowledge and understanding that could contribute to making her life a little bit easier in future? Uh, which is an enormously ambitious thing to do. Yeah, well, but absolutely,
0: <laughs> yeah. well, but, but we have to ask those questions in the first. So I, I would guess that the mental... Ill health and well-being is a big part of what you're concerned about at Healthwatch Essex, Kate. What, what, how are things looking at the at this moment? I mean, we're on the back end of a pandemic. It might come back again. There might be more to come. Um, uh, but we've we, we know we've had a couple of years. But but also we've had changes over 20, 30, 40, 50 years that have been very significant. That go from Being able to, um, uh, well, ignoring such a thing, Mm. fear of talking about it for women as well as men to a point where people are much more able to talk about it. But it's not clear whether that has actually helped improve things yet. Mm. You might need the methods like we were talking about with the toolkit to actually help us kind of work our way through an understanding in a different way.
2: No, for sure. And um, definitely, obviously, with kind of the mental health provision at the moment, there's obviously a crisis in terms of availability. And in my own work and speaking to other people working within mental health, the core issue is that people simply can't access services. Those who are able to afford to do so are going kind of into private mental health care far more readily than they would have done previously because they, they can't access state mental health provision in the way that they would have liked to. But obviously, the kind of there's an increasing historical trend of which I'd like to think that Health Watch Essex is part of. In terms of ensuring that service users' voices are increasingly acknowledged and incorporated, and raised in in term in response to these issues. So obviously, the work of the young mental health ambassadors is to give young people who experience mental health concerns the opportunity to talk about those experiences outside of kind of mental health services themselves, and kind of put forward suggestions as to how services might be improved. And I don't think that opportunity would have been in place if it wasn't for movements like the service user movement that really highlighted the importance of ensuring that service users' voices are incorporated into the development of provision. And um, that's obviously, we've touched upon that in the toolkit as well. Um, The strand of research that I did in the Body, Self and Family project focused on women's health activism, so how women themselves petitioned for their voices to be heard um, in the improvement of services. And I think there's still a long way to go in terms of how those voices are integrated, but that's something we're working to do at Healthwatch Essex
0: it's very interesting so we, we 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 can take the 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 space where voices can be heard that leads in certain ways to some sort of emergence of movements of activities amongst lots of people but there's still then perhaps a gap to changing existing institutions power structures long historical norms such as gender differences and so forth that that need then to be challenged but and that that could create frustration if it takes longer to Mm -hmm. achieve those things. There's a moment of hope when you've got a voice Mm. and there's probably a bigger moment of hope when that becomes a collective voice. But that's still got to kind of go a couple of steps further. I mean, do you think that's a legitimate space for historians, public historians, public engagement historians to be thinking about the sort of normative next steps in in any of these areas?
1: No, definitely. I mean... If you believe, as we do, that understanding the past helps you to understand the present and then to change the future, then it's absolutely something that historians should be doing. And certainly, you know, um, I work in a university, I teach students every year, and my main aim is to help them to go out into the world better equipped to understand it and to be informed citizens. Um, Yeah, I think (laughs) it's absolutely what history should be doing. Yes.
0: Yeah, and over that period of time that you were talking about, many more eighteen-year-olds um, uh, in general have gone to a thing called university. The numbers have gone from three percentage in the seventies to fifty percentage, depending on what you define as a university. Uh, so that that's given everybody an opportunity for transformation. It's also given women more of an opportunity in that period as well, hasn't it?
1: Um, Definitely. I mean, both my parents left school at 15. um, So I'm a classic first-generation student and I'm very aware that, you know, even 20 years beforehand I wouldn't have gone to university, I wouldn't have had the opportunities in life I've had. Um, So I'm very, I feel personally fortunate to be born at a particular historical moment, despite everything else that's going on in the world.
0: (laughs) Exactly, because uh, you've got some opportunities for agency for helping to make things better would that be that would be fair i mean it's, it's also about understanding the the trickiness of social and economic history um the, the it's not it's very rarely one thing or another thing it's very rarely good or bad um uh up or down it's lots of messiness in the middle isn't it um which needs needs tracking through so difficult often to conclude about these these areas that relate to individuals in a in a kind of simple way, um, and yet we've got to give people. Well, what you're doing is giving people the the wherewithal to think and to act together in different ways, um, and and hopefully to change things.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think one thing that I hope we've captured um, with the body, self, and family project more broadly, but also in the toolkit, is the kind of complexity of people's experiences and how you communicate that complexity to a wide-ranging audience. And certainly thinking about women and education, one of the fascinating aspects of the interviews that we did primarily with University of Essex alumni was where they positioned the university and the trajectory of their lives. So some women went to university kind of straight out of school, um but did so for different reasons. So one woman that we spoke to did so because she was in had had an abusive father and wanted to get away from him as quickly as possible and Essex was a long way away, but once she was there, she loved the education and became really passionate. Um, about her chosen degree and pursued a really successful career. Um, Other women that we interviewed um, were mature students and joined the university in their 40s and 50s but spoke about how much they enjoyed being with younger people and the kind of, again, the career trajectory that being at the university um, inspired for them. So it was just really interesting, even with a group of quite a specific demographic of alumni students, they, they had such a kind of diversity of experience and I was able to learn a lot from doing those interviews
1: view well, actually i'd say one big lesson about women's lives in this period is that one of the things that's talked about now very often is um the idea that people don't have a career for life but they will switch and do multiple mm. things and actually pretty much all of the women we spoke to did that um they did
0: the switching they, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yes, and exactly. it was sometimes yeah.
1: it was imposed by the fact that they'd had children and they'd gone back and gone different you know, career after bringing the children up but actually more often it was this sense that they started out on one path and if it hadn't satisfied them, they would go and do something Mm. else. And I think that was so different to how I was used to thinking about careers and work and how they'd worked in that period that I realised actually the model that I'd unconsciously taken on was really around the kind of expected male breadwinner or male Mm. professional role. And women just still weren't in that whole narrative about work and education.
0: Yeah, I mean, earlier on, you were describing um, one of the... um, uh informants who would said um well it wouldn't you know the world is not going to change for them once they're on in a particular kind of social and personal space that would be how the w- how the future would roll out for them, and now we find ourselves in the situation where people could do one thing for five years, switch do something different, do something different as well um and at the same time um have the potential for the the um, uh, the workspace, if we can call it that, to carry on for a long time. In other words, retirement comes later, um, but but um, it, it maybe it it doesn't ever come if you find a way of taking control over over your life. I mean, if you, in other words, if you're learning these methods, such as through the toolkit, early on, reflecting upon um, information from the past, um, picking up stories, and then creating a new story, that perhaps that then becomes a transferable skill if we could resolve it in a rather instrumental way. But it's something, once you've learned how to do it once, you could sit down at 35 or 45 or 55 and say, all right, fancy a change, or I'm fed up with this, or or, I need to get out of this, as you were describing with the informant you just mentioned who needed to get away from home. Well, you need a method to help you do that, don't you?
2: Well, I think sort of encouraging reflection is really beneficial and... um, and I hope the toolkit offers reassurance in that if someone's feeling a certain way and they're engaging with the toolkit, that it's not, you know, their own fault. Like there's there's sort of structural, um, almost like limitations or pressures in place that will affect how they're feeling. And I think that came through in the interviews that we did in that sort of, yeah, no no one had a linear trajectory over the course of their life, but... I, there would no no one obviously expressed remorse about that. I think it was kind of almost celebrated that you know life it was obviously not clear cut. And I hope that the toolkit goes some way to. Um I guess encouraging people to feel that it's okay to feel uncertain, that that uncertainty comes from external forces and that you're allowed to kind of chop and change and make, you know, different decisions. Those decisions might not work out, but then you'll, you'll find something else to do. And I think people who engage with our interviews as well once they're archived at the British Library will hopefully be able to see that and feel that at the same time.
0: Fascinating. I think that's very wise. I mean, you give, just giving people the space to be who they are mm. Um, uh, to to shrug off the social pressures and norms in a particular kind of way, and then just leave open spaces for for taking things in the direction you feel you want to. But you're probably going to need some support to do that, yes, as yeah. you kind of <laughs> help to move into that space. So, do you think that let's kind of bring this um, uh, together then with a kind of final con- few concluding thoughts about uh, about how you describe this public engagement use of history engagement in particular young people as you were describing here um, uh, in the in the project with these methods and tools um, this this is kind of helping to create kind of not just opportunity but stories that then become a currency stories that then become a method that you can then apply through through life um, uh, we, we're, we're natural storytellers writing and music and gossip and fairy tales and Jackie magazines and all sorts (laughs) of things you know the agony aunt is a kind of form of storytelling and because it helps people understand um, a little bit about how the world could change so quite interesting to see your final reflections on how you'd like things to happen now as a result of this and not just the creation of this this kind of one set of really fascinating methods in the toolkit but how public engagement around history could be used in ways to really kind of you know open up opportunities The, the pandemic and much more have um have been deeply troubling and worrying and horrible but and yet have opened up some kind of spaces for people haven't they
1: well, what we've tried to do in our historical research is to show the women that we've worked with that their voices have value, and that their voices uh, are important parts of history. By bringing more groups into the, the kind of the historical picture, that changes our overall sense of what history is, and it changes the sense of people who are reading and engaging with history or taking part in public engagement activities. Of where they might fit in and what value might be accorded to them. I think one of the things that we've seen so much, particularly over the past few years, is the importance of representation. You know, seeing people like you out there and the research we've done is one small way of doing that and as we've been talking to people in the activities we've run, um, it's bringing more people into that conversation.
0: And when you've got ambassadors, when you've given people specific Mm. roles for that representation, presumably they then become leaders within their own communities and maybe Mm. wider than that.
2: Yeah, without a doubt, Um, especially with the young young mental health ambassadors, I think it's so rare sometimes that you get a group of young people together who are happy to share their experiences of mental health, both to their peers the same age, but to adults and kind of, um, I guess, service providers as well. So I think providing that space gives them the confidence that their experiences are valid and they're important and benefit others. And um, and I think that happens across a range of experiences. So Health Watch Estes are also setting up a trauma ambassador group for individuals who have experienced trauma and how in sharing those experiences that can also enhance service um, services to support them. So I think there's yeah, real value in allowing people to not only share their experiences, but also see the importance that that sharing has in terms of instigating change. Mm-hmm
0: fascinating well thank you very much indeed so tracy lochran kate mahoney thank you very much indeed Uh, we've been hearing about bodies hearts and minds as the blog to accompany this podcast Um, uh, the toolkit is is uh, called using the past to empower the future um, helping young people think differently about emotional and bodily Um, well-being and we've been hearing about the practical um, relevance of public engagement and public history uh, within this area so thank you both very much indeed
1: thank Thank you you.
0: (laughs) that was louder than words if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the podcast have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can